Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We're going to finish this chapter this morning that we've been working through the Gospel of John for the past, well, I guess since the beginning of last year. And we're finishing up what we started last week in the look at this beautiful miracle of Jesus healing this man born blind from birth. As you're finding John 9, let me just circle back around on, on something Robert let you know about I, that I just want to add my emphasis to about Ed and Anna Moore coming to be with us next weekend. Uh, Ed is a pastor that we came to know five or six years ago through a network that, of pastors that we were part of. And uh, he is, is one of the guys that has, that has consistently fed my soul uh, since I have known him. Um, I, I listen to lots of preaching. I listen to well-known names. Uh, that, that feeds my soul. But there are a few guys that maybe aren't necessarily nationally known that I listen to uh, pretty regularly. And Ed is one of those guys uh, that is, is a pastor that from afar uh, really shepherds my soul. And so I just feel really grateful to bring people here that I am just so thankful for, that I have benefited from their ministry so much and expose them to you, just like we had Dr. York a couple weeks ago. It was just so neat to the people that I love most for you to get to hear from him. And I remember, you know, we've had the opportunity to hear from Conrad and Bayway, and I just get so excited when these really uh, fruitful men come and are able to share God's word with you. So I, I'm just looking forward to next week. Now, on Saturday, I didn't update Robert, but on Saturday, him and his wife are going to share from us respectively. Anna will speak to the women. Ed will speak to the men, as Robert said. But they are going to share particularly on biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, a kind of a broad category of what it's like to be a man or a woman in, in this culture, in this age. But that is for everybody. So whether you're married or single or young or old, any spectrum of life, I want you to be either a man or a woman. <laughs> and that's all of us. And I would love for you to come on that Saturday. And then Ed will preach on, on, uh, on Sunday. Ed uh, is originally from the Northeast. He's pastoring this church in New York. But he played football at this small community college up in North. East Georgia called the University of Georgia. He, uh, he was a walk-on defensive lineman there in the early 80s, and uh, a while back I was talking to Ed about his glory days at the University of Georgia. He played with Herschel Walker, and I said, Ed, uh, I got two questions for you. Did you ever go up against Herschel in practice, and did you ever tackle him? And he said, yes, I went up against Herschel in practice many, many times, and no, I never tackled him. <laughs> Ed's just a delightful guy, and Anna's just a wonderful sister. I'm just really looking forward to having them minister to us next weekend. John 9, as I told you, is, is maybe my favorite chapter in the Gospel of John. Now, if you've been around Crosspoint for any length of time, I think you know what we believe about the Scriptures. We believe... Let me throw some sort of theological terms out there for you. We believe that the scriptures are inerrant, meaning that there's nothing in the Bible that is wrong. There's no errors in the Bible. What, what, what God inspired the writers of the Bibles through the centuries of the scriptures to write down is without 
error. We believe that it's infallible, that nothing that it touches upon is wrong. It's all true. Every word of God proves true, Proverbs says about the Scriptures itself. We, we not only believe that it's inerrant and infallible, but as a result of the fact that God has breathed it out and it's inspired or breathed out by Him through men, and it's His word that He wants to communicate to us, we believe, therefore, that it's authoritative. It's not God. The Bible is not God. The Scriptures are not God. But they are the words of God. They carry the authority of God. So when Scripture speaks, God speaks. And because it's without error and because it's true and because it's God's word that's authoritative, it is, it is necessarily sufficient for us. It has all that we need. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other things, other disciplines that say true things that are obviously just the common grace of God that he might give, you know, a medical doctor or some particular person that might say some true thing in some sort of academic discipline. But it is to say that we subordinate everything underneath the authority and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. And so all of the Bible is breathed out by God. There are portions of the Bible that may be hard to understand. There are things that the Bible says about different doctrines. And there's things that we have to do to piece together this one overarching message of the Bible. And collectively, it becomes this witness that God has given the world and His people that is the sufficient guide for godliness and life. And it tells us all we need to know about how to be saved. Of course, even then, we need the illumination of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to it. But there are portions of the Bible, and I think John 9 is one of those portions, that are in a way, not a complete, but a kind of mini-summary of the message of the whole Bible. It doesn't say everything that the Bible... I'm not, I'm not saying that John 9 summarizes the whole Bible... But the story that John 9 tells, the scene that it puts forward to us, and the, the overarching message that it conveys is a kind of summary, really, I think, in many ways, of what it means to know God and to follow Him. So with that, let's pick up in verse 13, where we left off. Remember, Jesus has approached this man that's been born blind from birth, this question was insensitively thrown out in front of this man by Jesus' disciples. Like, why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin that he's like this? And Jesus said, neither one of those things. But this man was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. And we looked at that last week. And then Jesus does this very strange thing. He spits on some dirt, makes mud out of it, pats it on the guy's eyes, and tells him to go wash in this pool of Siloam. And the man does that. He obeys Jesus, and he sees after he obeys Jesus. And now the rest of the chapter is this investigation, these conversations about the miracle that we looked at last week. And I want us to pay particular attention to three reactions to this miracle that Jesus has performed on this man. Three reactions, first from his parents, Secondly, from the Pharisees and then from the man himself. So let's pick up in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. 
Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So that's important. This is going to become a point of conflict. In fact, it's a point of conflict all throughout John, all throughout the Gospels. One of the things that threatened the, the ministry of Jesus, that, th- that was threatening to the religious leaders, was Jesus' healings on the Sabbath. And it's not as if it just Jesus forgot what day it was. Jesus is intentionally doing these things on the Sabbath to bring about some spiritual conflict between him and these religious leaders who were twisting and misunderstanding the whole purpose of the Sabbath day and, in fact, the law in general. More on that in a moment. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Very simple, very straightforward, no fear. He, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. In other words, he was performing a work, so to speak, the miracle of healing this man on the Sabbath. So their interpretation of the Sabbath was that Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So Jesus is even causing some friction within the Pharisees, these religious elites and scribes and interpreters of the law who even themselves were a bit befuddled within their own ranks about who Jesus was. So verse 17, they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said simply, just this one sentence, he is a prophet. Now, I want you to stop here before we pick up on the conversation with his parents. I I want you to understand just the progression of the blind man's understanding of what has happened to him. And we're going to see it throughout this chapter. We didn't read it here, but back in verse 11, I think it is, what we covered last week after he's been healed... And they ask him, the people ask him, in verse 11, it says, the, they say to him, how were your eyes opened? And he said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. So first, it's just this guy named Jesus. And then secondly, here in verse 17, he, he says he's a prophet. And we're going to see his understanding of Jesus grow and eventually flower into saving faith. But here's the point, is that, is that I just want us to appreciate the progression of this man's understanding throughout the chapter. The point is, I think, is that spiritual growth and even spiritual birth sometimes takes time. And I'm not saying salvation is a process necessarily. It is a moment in time. We are born again, but leading up to salvation. And then even after salvation, our understanding of who Jesus is is a process. The Holy Spirit woos us. And then once we become believers, we grow in our understanding. And one of the best things we can do as a church collectively is to create a culture where where grace and patience and endurance with one another is is sort of the the, the culture of our church, is the heartbeat of our church. I can remember, and this was not uh, this was not in any way an indictment of the church that I went to after I became a Christian. But I think it was just my own sort of man-fearing, self-righteous heart. I've told you many times before, my older brother went away to college, witnessed, he became a Christian, came back, witnessed to me, brought me to a church. And I started to go to this little church in my hometown. And they were just sweet people, just loved the Lord. But I instantly felt this pressure after coming into this church and knowing that I had had this sort of salvation experience with the Lord at this, at this revival 
at my high school, and this evangelist came and preached the gospel, and I trusted, I confessed to the Lord, and I started going to church, and I immediately felt this pressure to act like I knew a lot more than I already did. And that's a, that can really stunt the growth of an early Christian. And when we all sort of have this kind of, we sp- when we speak Christianese and we sort of have a, a kind of judgmentalism or a sort of fear of man in us, whatever, that can really, it can be a very difficult place for people to grow in Christ. And I don't think that culture exists here. That's just a reminder, as I see this in the scriptures, for us just to be patient with one another. This man grew in his understanding of the Lord. Well, let's keep going. I want you to notice here, we're going to look at these, his parents and their reaction to the healing is striking. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, verse 18, until they called the parents of the man who had received the sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. (laughs) All right, what do they mean by that? Well, verse 22 gives us a little bit more of a window into what's going on in their soul. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, verse 23, he is of age, ask him. Well, you know, I know sometimes we have some discouraged parents in this room. Uh, just, just, just take heart. I mean, come on. There's some bad parents in the Bible. And, and these folks, are n- they're not winning. These, they're not doing any parenting conferences after this. I mean, come on, Dad. Like that beeping sound is you driving the bus backing up over me. (laughs) Now, here's the first reaction. Think about this. This is your son. The first reaction that I want us to notice is the, the reaction of the parents. And they are blinded by the fear of man. They're blinded. That's their reaction. They couldn't see because the parents are blinded by their fear of being put out of the synagogue and being on the outs with the religious establishment of their day. Now, we might think, gosh, I can't believe I would never do this. I would never sell out my child like this. But, but th- that's not the point. It's not to put yourself in this particular situation and say, oh, I would have done better. It's to see what's happening here in the human heart and apply it to your own situation. We have, all of us have some of this in us. Don't write yourself out of this just merely because you don't think you would have manifested your fear of man the same way that mom and dad of the year here did. Now We, we, we also are like this. We're prone to be driven by the opinion of others. And I, I think that in our culture, in our day, I think we're maybe more, I think this might be the Achilles heel, the, the real weakness of much of, of the church in our culture, just Christians in our culture, because we're so exposed, we're so tuned in to what everybody thinks that we really, we just kind of worship at the altar 
of the opinion of others. And even, strangely, even the people that, that, uh, that seem to be most bold, I think there's a kind of virtue signaling on their part too, where they're, they've just kind of gathered a smaller group of bold people that they're just trying to impress. We're all prone to this. Richard Baxter was an English pastor after the Reformation in England back in the 1600s, and he, he wrote this sermon. He preached this sermon, and I love the title of this sermon. Listen to the title of this sermon, and this is, this is how the Puritans titled their sermons. He, he called it Directions Against Inordinate Man-Pleasing or That Overvaluing the Favor, favor of Man, Which is the Fruit of Pride and a Great Cause of Hypocrisy or Directions Against Idolizing Man. <laughs> He preached a sermon in his title. Listen to what he says about, about how we are. He says, remember, and he, he's, he's trying to highlight here the folly of trying to please people and how, how exhausting that can be. He says, remember how silly a creature man is and that his favor can be no better than himself. The thoughts and words of a mortal worm are matters of no considerable value to us. Remember what a multitude you have to please. He's speaking about those of us who are trying to please everybody around us and make everybody else happy, fearing man. Remember what a multitude you have to please. And when you have pleased some, how many more will still be unpleased? And how many displeased when you have done your best? Alas, we are insufficient at once to observe all those that observe us and would be pleased by us. You are like one that hath but twelve pennies in his purse, and a thousand beggars come about him for it, and every one will be displeased if he have it not all. The point Baxter's making is that if we if we make the opinion of others, if we give that power over to man, people around us, they will never be satisfied. They will demand our allegiance, and we don't have enough in us to pay off that emotional debt. This picture I have is, um, and I have it of myself, is that life can oftentimes be like a, a courtroom. And the, 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 the opinion of others around you, the opinion of the people, maybe you're in a mother's group, or maybe you're a pastor of a church, and you kind of care what whether people are, are in it or not, you know? I don't know, just theoretically. I don't know anybody like that. And life can be like a courtroom, and, and you can get in this mode where you're just, you're walking into the courtroom every day, and you just want the judge, which is the people around you, the opinion of others. You just want the gavel to hit the desk, and you want to hear yes over your life. And you're definitely afraid of a no. And so you do whatever it takes to please the people around you. And that's how these parents lived. And it blinded them. They were so afraid of what consequences they may face because of their fear of man that they were blinded to the miracle that happened to their own son. Well, let's keep going. Verse 24. Let's look now at the reaction of the Pharisees. Verse 24, so for the second time they called the man who had been born, had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Verse 25, now the man, I love this, this is one of the reasons I love, he, he at the beginning of the chapter was a humble beggar 
And now the transformation in him, he's just going to get downright chippy. Verse 25, he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Man, that's a great sentence. Like, I, I don't know, I don't know much about theology, I don't know. All I know is that I met Jesus, I was blind, now I see. That's the testimony of every Christian who has ever come to faith in Christ. I was blind, but now I see. Whether you came to him in a Christian home and at, at, at a young, tender age of five or six or seven, just in the sweet providence of God, he opened up your eyes and he guarded you from a lot of sort of obvious outward sin. Or whether you were a, a 40-year-old that spent a life running from God with obvious sin and obvious consequences, your testimony as a 40-year-old public sinner is the same testimony of the five-year-old who grows up in the Christian home. I was blind, but now I see. And he says, you know, I, I got a lot of blanks to fill in. I don't know everything that I need to know, but one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Friends, that's the Christian life. You were dead, you were made alive. You were blind, but now you see. Verse 25 is a kind of overarching summary of salvation in itself. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. I didn't do eye exercises. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't start taking some medication. I didn't start a new diet. I didn't, I didn't get a book on seven steps to have a, a, a better uh, see, eyes. I don't know. I, I was blind, but now I see. That's salvation, friends. That's the grace of God. That's the good news of the gospel. He takes dead people and he makes them alive. He takes blind people and he gives them spiritual sight. And friends, mark this. This chapter is not primarily about Jesus healing, the physical healing of a blind man. It is a picture of spiritual sight, not physical sight. And they said to him, verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They don't like it, but they're just so curious, you know? How? And he answered them, <laughs> I love this, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I mean, he's just, hey man, he's just, he's, he's, he's moved from witnessing into just it's kind of smart aleck mode now, and it's, it's, it's kind of satisfying, honestly, if, if, if we're honest about it. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. So they're still caught up in this misunderstanding. They're trying to pit Jesus against Moses. And this is ironic because Jesus, I'll read this verse to you in a second, but Jesus says that Moses wrote about me. And so if you're going to truly believe in Moses, the Old Testament is not, don't, don't, so a lot of people have a misunderstanding of how the Bible fits together. And they think that the Old Testament is this sort of picture of God who's angry and wrathful and he's got all these laws and it didn't really work. And so now he kind of changed his ways in the New Testament and he's gracious and humble and loving. Friends, that's not what the Bible teaches. God is holy and good and righteous. His characteristics are always the same, his, his, who he is. And, and in the Old Testament, he gives this law out of love, to display his holiness, to show our sinfulness, 
and to push us away from ourselves to Christ. The purpose of the law, we can say lots of it, it's good, it's holy. The purpose of the law was not meant to save us, but to show us that we need a Savior. We need somebody to live righteous for us because clearly we can't live righteous on our own. And that's what Moses, that's why God spoke to Moses. There's lots of things we can say about the law. And the law is beautiful and holy. And God's law, in the form of tablets of stone in the Old Testament, in a sense, abides now in the hearts of Christians through all that it teaches us morally and principally, but the Spirit of Christ that lives us in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit that is now writes the law of God on our hearts. So it's not like, oh, well, thank God we live in this period of grace and God has no demands. No, He's pointing us away from ourselves to Christ in the old and the new. And Jesus tells them, in fact, I'll read it now, John chapter 5, verse 46 through 47, Jesus says to these, maybe some of these same people, if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so here's, here's the striking thing, is just a few chapters after that, they are still so blind by their, their self-righteousness that they're pitting Moses, who wrote about Jesus, against Jesus himself, and they're trying to tell this blind man, we're of Moses, you're of this guy. Verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, verse 30, he, he just goes all the way in. Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the, be- the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now just notice the transformation in this guy. We're talking, this is moments later, he went from being a blind, humble beggar to encountering Jesus, just obeying Jesus, receiving his sight. First he says, oh, this man called Jesus. Secondly, he says he's a prophet. Now he's just growing in boldness and understanding. And he is, he's saying, this man is from God. There's no way he could do this. So notice just the reaction now of the Pharisees. They were blinded by self-righteousness. Parents were blinded by their fear of man. The Pharisees are blinded by self-righteousness. And they're, they're taking the very good law of Moses, which is the word of Christ. It's Christ's words. Moses' words. The whole Bible is, is, is Jesus speaking. Don't be one of these people who says silly things like, I'm a red-letter Christian. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life, as if Jesus only speaks in, when he's actually physically speaking in the Gospels. The whole Bible is Jesus speaking. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit speaking. And what was so ironic and sad about the self-righteousness of the Pharisees is that they were taking, really, the words of God himself, Christ himself, that Moses wrote about Jesus, that were meant to point them to Jesus, and they were picking and choosing things from it 
the things that they could do well, they would hold up as a club to beat other people with, and the things that they couldn't do well, they sort of minimized and didn't talk about much. And, and that we see that in just one chapter over in the account of Jesus forgiving and encountering this woman caught in adultery. Remember, maybe these are some of the same Pharisees. They bring this woman who's caught in adultery to Jesus, and they say, it's a test case to Jesus about this law of Moses. What do you say, Jesus, about how would you handle this woman according to the law of Moses, which says that we should stone her? And remember what Jesus does? He stoops down on a knee, and he starts to scribble in the sand with his finger, and he says, he who has no sin, who's without sin, let, let him be the one to cast the first stone. And all of these Pharisees, steeped and blinded by their self-righteousness, at least knew that they had sin and they were unqualified and they just sort of walk away. And the very law that was coming, Moses' words, it was sent to humble them to show them that they needed something outside of themselves, that there's no way they could follow God and there, there's no way that they could obey God. This law that was meant to shine light on their need, on our need, they are blinded to it and they use it, they twist it to prop up their own righteousness. That's the error of the Pharisees. But again, just like the parents, let's not look at them and say, oh my gosh, how could they miss it? I mean, it's so easy to understand. Look at all these prophecies that have been fulfilled. Friends, we do the same. We use the things that we're strong at to beat up other people and judge them. And we conveniently sweep under the rug the things that we fail at. The fruit of the blind self-righteousness of the Pharisees was pride and judgmentalism. And it blinded them. But let's look at the final reaction, the blind man. The right reaction. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him... He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? So take note, you may, may not realize this, but this is really the first time that the man born blind has actually seen Jesus. Because when Jesus healed him, he, he put the mud on his eyes and then he sent him to this pool to wash, and he goes away, and he washes, and then he sees. So I guess unless he would just really recognize Jesus' voice, he didn't really, he's never seen Jesus. He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and worshiped him. Jesus said, verse 39, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these, thi heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Okay, let's explain a couple things here before we... 
We pray and respond to the Lord in song. The man sees Jesus, he hears Jesus, and he says, Lord, I believe. And what's his response? To worship Jesus. Do you think this man had some some questions still unanswered? Yeah. Do you think he had some growing to do in sanctification? Yeah. I mean, in the process of being saved here, as he's being drawn, he's just He's, I mean, I don't know what's going on in verses 24 through 34, but he's an arrogant little dude. I mean, he probably needs a little bit of humbling himself, although I appreciate his bold witness. And here he is. He's saying, Lord, I believe. And his response is just to worship him. And Jesus gives us a kind of summary of what's going on here in verse 39. He's saying, for judgment, I came into this world. And look what Jesus saying. It says here in the second part of verse 39, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. That's the point of this chapter, that those who are humble, those who, who, who have no confidence in themselves, those whose life situation has so brought them to their knees are the type of people that God saves. And that's why we can go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter where Jesus says that that this man was born this way for the work of God to be displayed in him. In other words, the difficulty that he faced was part of what brought him to his knees, was part of the thing that made him humble, which made him a candidate for the grace of God. And don't we reverse that often in our life? I mean, we just... We see the happy, blessed life. We look at somebody who's got some challenging situation, and we just say, oh, poor Johnny, poor Susie, poor whatever. Friends, the challenges that we face are often the means. They're the vehicle. They're the pathway for God's grace in our lives. And quite frankly, some people that are just sharp and pretty and intelligent and wealthy and have everything that they need, and we look at them and say, oh, I wish I could be like them. Those very things are often the obstacles that keep them from God. Now, I'm not saying we should go out and intentionally make life hard on ourselves so that we can be some sort of spiritual, you know, uh, more spiritual people. And I'm not saying that blessing or talents or abilities or looks or riches or whatever are necessarily evil. I'm just saying here, friends, let's not invert what's going on here in the scriptures is that God saves unlikely people, people that are humble, and he opens their eyes. And people that are proud and dependent on themselves, he leaves in their blindness. And he says, for judgment I've come into this world. In other words, he has come. This is a profound statement. For judgment I've come into this world. Not only has he come ultimately and in the end to judge those that do not trust in him and see him and worship him, but he's come to bear the judgment, to be the wrath-absorbing sacrifice on the cross for those that do see him. So Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life and he where the law has convicted all of us, where we have disobeyed God, where we've been self-righteous, where we have feared man. Because all of us have a little bit of mom and dad, parent of the year, and all of us have the fear of man in us, and all of us have some self-righteousness in us. All of us have sin. All of us have disobeyed God. And Jesus comes, and all of us deserve judgment. And Jesus has come for those that will see that and humble themselves and turn away from themselves. Jesus has come to bear that judgment, to bear it. 
to remove it, to satisfy it, to extinguish it in his perfection, in his obedient life as a true man, truly God. He lays down his life on the cross. He lives a perfect life, and he takes the punishment, the judgment for our sin. That's what this man sees. That's what anybody who ultimately comes to Christ must see, that we are sinners, that he is perfect, that he died, that he rose again, and that he is our only hope to be reconciled to a holy God. And so he takes the judgment of those who are blind but see. But for those who think that they see but are truly blind, he judges. But which side of the judgment aisle will you be on? The humble that see or those that think they see but are blind? May it be said of everyone in this room that we are amongst those humble that see, not amongst those that see, but are truly blind. Which one of these reactions do you think most characterizes your life? The parents, blinded by the fear of man. The Pharisees, blinded by self-righteousness. Or the blind man who sees, believes, and worships Jesus. I think it's okay if it's, you see a little bit of all three in you. I certainly see a little bit of all three in me, but I want more of the blind man's reaction. I want to see Jesus afresh. I want to believe him. I want to worship him. I want to trust in him, and I want to follow him, and I want to be satisfied in him forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful chapter, this beautiful story that you recorded of this encounter with Jesus and this blind man. Lord, we want to be like him. We don't want to be proud. We don't want to be fearful. We want to see Jesus. I pray that the testimony of every person in this room would be, at some point in their lives, able to say, one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. And Lord, that can only happen if you open their eyes. Or if there's somebody in this room that has, has maybe wrongly gathered from this chapter or anything that I've said, that they must now go on their way and try harder to be a better person. Lord, rid them from that self-righteous pursuit. It will fail. And help them see that our only hope is Jesus who bore the judgment that we all deserve on the cross and satisfied it and rose again in victory and now opens the eyes of the blind so that they may see, believe, and worship Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would do this for any unbelievers in this room. And I pray that you would renew and refresh this for all of us that already do believe. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.